Okay, hi everybody. We're going to get started. Um, today we have quite a bit to get through with uh, remedies, but we're going to cover this this class and next class. And um, the readings for next class are really brief. So really the bulk of the reading is for today. I don't think I'm going to get through everything that I hope to get out of the chapter today. So we'll probably finish up with the chapter on Friday and go through the cases. I think it's a really excellent chapter. Um, I believe it's Christy Ford of Allard who wrote this chapter. And I think that it's, it's one of the better parts of the book. And I also think that this chapter... Uh, incorporates so many of the ideas that we're going to be revisiting throughout the course. This is a pretty good one to have in the back of your mind. You might want to revisit at the end of the course. If everything in this chapter makes sense by the end, you know, you'll be in a really good overarching place in this course. Before I get started, I want to just touch base briefly on the schedule and the syllabus. I had really intended to get the updated uh, syllabus, but I'm juggling one last thing with a when a guest can come, so that maybe not able to finalize it quite yet. I should have a finalized version on Friday. And as I mentioned last week, the issue I'm dealing with is this judicial review that I was supposed to be doing for a week while we had class has been um, adjourned for now. And so um, I'm going to shuffle the, the schedule so that we can deal with things in a logical way and so that we can um, still get some of the benefit of the guests that we had um, that we had planned on. Are there any administrative questions about anything before I get started with the substance today? All right, let's get started. So today we are talking about remedies. And I think I've said this a couple times, but I love the fact the book tackles remedies at the outset. And I think it's crucially important that lawyers always take a view towards ultimate remedy whenever a client walks in the door. And that's probably especially true in the context of administrative law for a couple of reasons. Um, as we'll get into with the book, uh, does it does a good job of not just focusing on the remedies available in judicial review or statutory appeal when you're going to the court. But the book does a really good job, I think, of saying, well, what about the remedies available at administrative tribunals? And of course, when somebody walks into your office, you know, you're going to have to have a, if they haven't gone to the tribunals yet, you know, you may have more than one option of where to go and thinking about who can give you what your client actually wants. It's crucially important. We'll get into that in some detail today. And the second thing that I think makes remedies so important to study at the outset of a course and to think about at the outset of any case you're taking on is that your client's unlikely to understand what you're really going to get from a court, even if you're successful in a judicial review. And that is more often than not, most of the time, nearly all the time, even a successful application for a judicial review just means we're going back to the tribunal, they're going to decide it again, and there's likely going to be a significant chance that the tribunal could come to the same substantive outcome or another substantive outcome that's still not satisfactory to your client. So nothing is worse than having a client not understand that. You bill them a ton of money 
you go be successful on a judicial review, they are through the roof, they're so happy. Then two months later, they say, wait, hold on, the exact same thing just happened to me again. What did I pay you for? What was the point of all of this? So being clear-eyed as to what remedies are and are not available, what the likely ultimate substantive outcome towards, not just you know, winning the process of a judicial review, but getting your client where they need to go, absolutely crucial. And we're thinking about at the outset of a course, the outset of a file, and worth keeping in your mind throughout this course and throughout you know, the process of litigating a file because you may see off-roads where you can get just as good a remedy as you might get if you went through court. And indeed, you know, that's the reason that I'm not going ahead with that judicial review in February is that I was able to get something in the interim that got my client almost everything they could get from the judicial review. So you have to always have an eye to remedies through judicial review. Okay, so the first really crucial point that you need to, to recall, and we're going to start by focusing, just as the book does, on the remedies available at the tribunal level. The very first crucial, crucial thing we have to be very clear on is that the tribunal's powers to issue remedies are going to be those powers as are provided in their enabling statute. And that term, enabling statute, I think I'm saying for the first time in this course right now, it certainly won't be the last. What I mean by enabling statute is the statute that grants the tribunal its power and jurisdiction. And of course, a key part of that is its power or jurisdiction to issue a remedy. Because unlike a Section 96 court, there's no inherent jurisdiction. There's no inherent remedial powers. You only have such powers as are provided for in statute. So when you're thinking, what can I get from a tribunal? The first place you have to go is the statute that empowers that tribunal. So I want to um, start by looking at a few different enabling statutes of key British Columbia tribunals so you can get a sense as to what a remedies provision in a statute would look like. And we can jump off to think about a few um, you know, wrinkles in what these different tribunals have in terms of power. So the first one I'm going to go to is the Residential Tenancy Act. Of course, this is a high volume tribunal. If you practice in an admin law area, you're likely going to come into contact with this tribunal at some point. And the remedies provision is set out in sections 62 and 63 of the uh, Residential Tenancy Act. Um, just quick aside, what you'll see here is it's framed as the director's authority respecting dispute resolution proceedings. And it says the director has authority to determine. Now, who is the director? Well, that is one person. That is, the, in essence, the head of the tribunal. Um, just a tip. Quite often, you're going to see powers given to one individual, but elsewhere in the statute, an authority given to that individual to delegate the powers. So it's not, in fact, the case that only the director has these powers. Rather, these powers have been given by the director to the various adjudicators. So just a little wrinkle so you don't get confused by that. But this fundamentally sets out the powers of the tribunal. And you'll see that the 
Director's powers are in essence to make any order necessary to give effect to the rights, obligations, and prohibitions under this act, including an order that a landlord or tenant comply with this act, the regulations or a tenancy agreement, and an order that this act applies. The thing I'm going to pause here and tie into Ron Corelli is there's a seemingly broad discretion provided, you know, any order, but that discretion is constrained significantly by the purpose of the statute. So those, that broad discretion has to be exercised in accordance with the purpose of the statute. An interesting wrinkle that I want to point out is section 63. Section 63 says the director may assist the parties or offer the parties an opportunity to settle their dispute. And then if they do settle, the director may record that settlement in the form of an order. And here's a place I want to just pause and recognize, you know, this is a key distinction between going to this tribunal or actually many other tribunals have a similar uh, power and going to court. If you go to court, the judge isn't going to say, hold on, before we get started with you arguing with each other, can we settle this thing? Is there, is there a common ground here? You know, in fact, that would be inappropriate, right? You know, settlement discussions with respect to the court are done on a without prejudice basis, and it's actually not even, it's a privilege. You're not supposed to be able to tell the court anything about your settlement discussions on the theory that you should be able to speak frankly when you're settling a dispute, be able to say, I recognize I have some weakness on this particular part of my case. Maybe I can give a little bit here in order to get something here. And you don't want to have that thrown back at you. Uh, he admitted his case was weak here. You know, so you have without prejudice settlement discussions that aren't supposed to ever be talked about in court until after the determination on the merits when sometimes they come up in the question of, of costs. You know, I offer to settle this for much less than you awarded me, so this whole thing was pointless. Uh, that sort of a thing. Um, here, however, it's completely the opposite. If you go to a residential tenancy hearing, usually the first thing that's going to happen is the adjudicator is going to say, okay, I've looked at these materials. Um, you know, is there any room for settlement here? It seems like maybe there's a compromise solution that could work for both parties and keep this tenant in their, uh, in their unit or something like that. And quite often that works, you know, and then uh, disappointing that the two parties couldn't have come to terms before, um, you know, having to go all the way through this hearing and do all the prep. But still, if you can get to a settled outcome to a dispute, it's probably got a much better chance that both parties are going to be able to satisfactorily live with it. So this is part of the remedial powers is to go ahead and encourage and then record and make effective, you know, a settlement agreement that the parties may come to. It's something to have in, in the back of your head. Um, I want to flip over to another very important uh, piece of legislation in British Columbia, the Human Rights Code, and just briefly look at the remedial powers there. And again, the remedial powers here are extremely broad. Um, so you may order the person who contravened this code to take steps to ameliorate the effects of the discriminatory practice. 
You may adopt and implement an employment equity program or other special program to ameliorate the conditions of disadvantage. These are getting at these systemic broad remedies. I'm going to talk more about those in a second. Then you notice that if the person discriminated against is a party to the complaint, they may um, compensate the person or order payment to the person discriminated an amount the member panel considers appropriate to compensate that person for injury to dignity, feelings, and self-respect. So you can get monetary awards to compensate you for the discrimination that you've suffered. This is not something that the Residential Tenancy Act is going to empower the Residential Tenancy Branch to do. The Residential Tenancy Act's focus is on landlord-tenant disputes, and ordinarily the remedies are going to be things like you can stay in this, in this rental unit. Um, you have to pay the back rent that you haven't, um, that you've been owing. The landlord owes you money for, for a breach of your privacy. You know, these sorts of things are all within their powers. But to say um, your dignity has been hurt by this, this landlord, you know, not something you ordinarily are going to be able to get from the Residential Tenancy Act. And this gets to this key preliminary point that you need to have in your mind when your client comes into the office. You know, what is it that you really want? Because there very well may be situations where there's more than one tribunal who has some jurisdiction over you and their remedial powers may be significantly different. So take, for example, a hypothetical situation where somebody comes into your office and they say, you know, I was just evicted, let's give a notice of eviction from my place because the landlord said I, I, I'm too loud, but it's absurd, I'm not too loud, I'm just a normal tenant. You might say, oh, okay, well, I could set that aside Residential Tenancy Act, probably. That sounds unreasonable. If I could get good evidence, I could probably get that eviction notice set aside. But then the person says, and you know, I'm an indigenous person, and the only other person to be evicted from this uh, whole unit in the last five years was also an indigenous person. And I think the only reason I was evicted was because I was, uh, you know, I was indigenous and the landlord's uh, prejudiced. You think, oh, wait a second. That might be a human rights issue. Well, then what's the next question? Now, well, what do you want? Do you want to keep living here? Person may say, yeah, it's my home. I can't be kicked out onto the street. I got nowhere to go, right? It'd be a huge burden to have to you know, move right now. My kid's in school. I can't imagine having to find a new place in the school district. I better stay there. Okay, we better go to residential tenancy, get that eviction set aside. What if they say, oh, no, I don't want to live there. Are you kidding me? I want to live with that crazy landlord who's prejudiced. Happy to move somewhere else, but we got to make this guy pay. Well, then you might be thinking, okay, this is more of a human rights issue. This is more where we want to go. So understanding you know, the, the basic facts is crucially important, but also understanding what's driving your client to your office is crucially important. Uh, there may also be circumstances where the client doesn't really have a concrete remedy that they're particularly after so much as they just feel pissed off. Something bad happened to them and they want vindication and they want to make the other person recognize that what they did is unacceptable. Well, in those types of circumstances, 
sometimes your client really wants the quote unquote day in court. They want that day and that opportunity to express to a neutral person, uh, you know, this is what happened to me and this can't be acceptable. Well, if that's the case, then you may want to think to yourself, well, different tribunals have different levels of process and different tribunals have different degrees to which they're going to satisfy the client that they've actually been heard. There may be tribunals where you're going to be dealing with purely written exchanges of arguments and there's not going to be an oral hearing and that might not be adequate for your client's actual purpose of you know, trying to get some, some vindication a day in court feeling. So there's a lot of considerations that you want to bring to bear in this initial idea as to which direction, which tribunal am I going to go to? Yeah. Um, I did some, some research around insolvency law. Yeah. Some years ago, and there was issues around this idea of statute shopping between the, kind of the two insolvency regimes in Canada. And the issue there was, was seeking kind of the ability for someone to seek different relief under each statute. Yes. And there was kind of discourse about whether that was consistent with maybe the rule of law or, or consistency in general. Is there this, a similar issue? That's a great question, like a, a fantastic question, excellent point. And what I think the underlying um, concern here, and the courts are very clear on this, is it can be an abusive process if you start going to more than one place, asking the same question to more than one different decision maker. And if you start something in federal court, and seek the same relief in BC Supreme Court, say you start two parallel actions, the court's gonna say, hold on, one of these has to stop. We, we can't have multiple parallel proceedings going on. And that can be a problem in the administrative tribunal world, but there's a big caveat that different tribunals have different remedial powers. So it may be that to make your client whole, no one tribunal can handle all elements of the dispute. In such circumstances, you may be permitted to go ahead with both. However, uh, it may also be the case the tribunals will say, I don't want these both to go ahead at the same time. I want one to be resolved and then we'll do the other one because they're concerned about the possibility of inconsistent factual findings. Um, yeah, go ahead. Yeah. that they're more lenient with letting like two go ahead because they're kind of different questions in terms of like either the RTA or like the employment standards yeah. or something like that. Absolutely. So human rights is often an area where there is a distinct consideration that's being brought in and an ability to, to uh, hear both. And oftentimes human rights will be the one that goes first too. If there is an overlap and one of them decides to step aside, they'll say, get your human rights thing settled, then come back to here. Um, but the, so there's a few more points I wanna make on this idea of um, multiple tribunals having different uh, parts of the remedial picture to you. So one point is that there's often very little disincentive to starting multiple proceedings if you're willing to pull one back if it becomes clear that that's not the appropriate form. So if you start something in human rights, you start something in civil resolution tribunal, and you start something in residential tenancy, that could all arise in relation to the same fundamental dispute, potentially. 
let's say a landlord came into your unit without you being aware that they were going to do so without notice, you think they stole something from you, um, and you think they did it because of a discriminatory purpose. They don't, they don't like your you know, membership in some identifiable group. Well, you might have human rights complaint. You might have a complaint about residential tenancy, breach of residential tenancy act, rights of uh, quiet enjoyment. And you might have a civil resolution tribunal you know, case for conversion. And it may be the case that as things progress, you realize, well, really, the, the remedy that we're after is a civil resolution tribunal. The other things are kind of beside the point. It doesn't seem like it's motivated by you know, discriminatory reasons or anything like that. And um, you know, I'm not really concerned about an order saying you can't do that again. I want my money because this person stole something from me. Well, then there will be almost no penalty to you for discontinuing the other two proceedings. That'll be, there's not cost awards in tribunals ordinarily in the same way there is in courts. So you will be allowed to withdraw those things and you'll lose basically your filing fee. On the other side of things, let's say you see these three things. You think it's probably civil resolution tribunal. You start that one. You don't start a residential tenancy process. Well, the residential tenancy process has really strict, really short timelines to get started. 21 days for many things. If you miss that timeline, it's really hard, if not impossible, to overcome that missing of that, you know, in essence, limitation period. So the downside for starting more than one thing and discontinuing is pretty small. The downside for not starting something you should have started can be really significant. So it certainly is the case that you could run into these same concerns of forum shopping, adjudicator shopping, uh, parallel proceedings, seeking the same relief in different places in an abusive way. And tribunals could say, I'm not going to go ahead with this. I'm going to stay this process. I'm going to defer to this other tribunal. And you could get in trouble. You could get potentially a cost award against you from a tribunal if they find it was um, intentional and they have jurisdiction to issue cost awards, which not every tribunal has. You do see it in the human rights tribunal here. You may award costs. And again, if it's not in the statute, they don't have the power to award costs. Human rights tribunal does. But only if you engage in improper conduct during the course of the complaint. And so, you know, it may be found that starting multiple proceedings is improper conduct. You might have costs awarded against you. But what I'm getting at is if you're reasonable and you're willing to withdraw when it becomes clear you're in the wrong place, practically err on the side of starting more things, err on the side of securing limitation periods, as opposed to you know, being hesitant because of concerns that you're going to be um, you know, found to be adjudicator shopping or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. 
I see what you're saying. That's a really interesting point. I actually hadn't really thought of that before, uh, to be totally honest. And I think the answer would likely be that the notion of exhausting your internal relief isn't really aimed at exhausting other avenues to substantively um, get what you want. It's aimed at other avenues to correct what you say is the mistake the tribunal made. So if you say this tribunal acted outside its jurisdiction, um, it's likely the court's going to be willing to entertain that and intervene, even if they say, well, maybe you could you know, mitigate your loss by getting some relief from another tribunal that's unrelated to this. It's really more, can you get reconsideration and can you do an internal appeal within the tribunal structure itself? So that's a really interesting point, and I, I, I think that's very... I could see that argument being made. You know, I think it would probably be responded to in the way I described, but that's an interesting point. Any other questions? Um, okay, so I just want to make sure I didn't miss something because actually these questions jumped me a little bit ahead of my notes, but they were they were right on point and really good, really good questions. Um, all right, so. The big takeaway you want from this, you know, first part of this lecture is I need to go look at the enabling statute to see what the tribunal's powers are. And I need to think through where I'm going to go, what tribunal's going to have the power I need to help my client. Those are the, the big, bold takeaways from this. Little sub point that I want to, um, to make and not be... Uh, you know, not, not skip over, is that potentially there may be implicit powers that the court will find exist or the tribunal will find exist. And so what this means is without departing from the fundamental principle that you only have such powers as are given to you by the legislature, the court may say, or the tribunal may say, well, if you got this power, this very strong power up here, it's implicit you had such necessary subsidiary powers as are required to make that power effective. So let's say you have a tribunal that explicitly has the power to engage in ongoing monitoring of some entity. You know, pipeline, you're approved, but I, the Canada Energy Regulator, have the power to monitor your ongoing compliance with this act. Well, it may be found implicit then that you have the power to order some reporting from that company that you can't monitor without the power to compel reporting. So even if that wasn't explicit in the Canada Energy Regulator Act, it is, but I'm just using an example. Even if it wasn't explicit, you likely would be able to say that's an implicit power. So that's the idea with implicit powers, is it's going to be only such powers as are um, required to give effect to the powers explicitly given. Okay, I'm going to move away from um, 
the sort of beginning where we're talking about looking at the statutes. And I'm going to move into what I think is maybe one of the most interesting parts about this chapter from my perspective, and that's the discussion which ties the breadth of remedial powers that tribunals have to a discussion of what makes tribunals unique and what might explain you know, why they have such interesting and broad powers and why they may be so effective at ultimately getting your client uh, a remedy, a result that the court you know, may not be the appropriate forum for. I quite liked the point that a lot of tribunals are not simply staffed by lawyers. A lot of tribunals are in fact explicitly required to be staffed by people who are not lawyers to at least some degree. Now that even um, includes the Law Society of British Columbia Tribunals, the uh, review panel has a bencher, a non-bencher lawyer, and a layperson. Uh, lots of tribunals have a requirement that there be somebody who's a layperson, who's got a perspective from outside the context of the um, particular dispute, or requires that there be people with specialized expertise on the panel who are going to be drawn from industry or you know, from, from, from the, the area that's being regulated. And so the book makes the point that when you have non-legally trained individuals, they're just not going to be as constrained by their perception, preconceived notion, understanding of what appropriate remedies are. They might think more broadly and more creatively. I also really like the point that these tribunals may have an ongoing regulatory relationship with the entity before them. And that's quite different from court. You know, if you go to court, it's almost certainly going to be on a dispute that's a discrete issue. It's going to be resolved. You are unlikely to ever see that judge again on that dispute. They're going to be functus, right? Their, their power is going to be exercised. If the dispute comes back before the court again, you're likely to have a different judge. And the judge is thinking, I'm going to make an order I don't know, once and for all. Here's my order. I'm done. Next case on the docket. I can't always, or that's not always the case with tribunals. Quite often, there's an ongoing regulatory relationship where you know that as an entity, you're going to be interacting with the regulating tribunal every year. This encourages and allows them to do ongoing oversight, ongoing compliance programs, try things out, see how it works. We'll check in next year. We may tweak this. This sort of ongoing relationship can lead to more flexible, more dynamic, more tailored remedies. And I'll get back to the point when we talk about judicial oversight, that sometimes these systemic remedies run into difficulties when the courts find them beyond what they're used to overseeing. I'm going to come back to that point. 
So the court, or sorry, the book, uh, has a few interesting examples where tribunals took a more systemic look at a problem and stayed engaged over a lengthy period with a view towards solving a problem instead of hearing a case, making an order, and washing their hands, as it were. And the first example is the McKinney case, a case about discrimination being suffered by a correctional services officer on the grounds of uh, Indigenous ancestry. And in essence, what you had here was the tribunal who recognized a problem, made an order, and then McKinney came back and said, it's not changing. Tribunal made another order and then went so far as to find a member of the government to be in contempt of their order. And ultimately, it was going to go back for, I believe, a third time before the parties finally settled. And this whole thing took place over some 16 years, I think is the number. You know, the notion of that kind of ongoing oversight, involvement, um, awareness of, of sort of the implementation of remedies, is pretty far afield from what you ordinarily would expect in a court. But the book also speaks of times where a tribunal can go too far in this in this realm of trying to take on a systemic issue as opposed to confining their focus to the dispute before them. And frankly, this is a criticism that's quite often leveled at the BC Human Rights Tribunal. And in the Moore case, which I think comes out of North Vancouver, uh, this criticism ended up being um, you know, ultimately found meritorious by the Supreme Court of Canada. So what you had there was a um, par uh, parents of a dyslexic student who were unhappy with the decision to end a um, specialized program to put students with the special needs uh, associated with dyslexia into a more mainstream environment and a finding that they had inadequately allocated resources to support dyslexic students in this transition to the sort of mainstream uh, school and a finding that that was discriminatory. And that was all challenged and ultimately upheld by the Supreme Court of Canada. But what the court found was that the tribunal went a bit far because they stopped focusing on the circumstances of Mr. Moore and the school before the, the tribunal and started looking broadly at funding of special needs and dyslexia in the province as a whole. They were compelling budget documents and sort of second guessing these sorts of decisions And Supreme Court of Canada, Justice Abella said, you've gone too far. 
you are not a, a roving inquiry, I think is the language she used in essence. She said, while you have the power to address systemic issues that come before you, you can't lose sight of the particular case before you, the individual complainant before you, and who's properly uh, responding to that complaint. And you can't try to, you know, in essence, um, reform an entire area when that's going far astray from what's particularly before you. And I think the book does a good job of tying this into that point I alluded to and said I'd come back to, and now I am, which is once you start doing that sort of a deep dive into governance, second-guessing, allocation of resources, uh, proposing systemic solutions or mandating systemic solutions and engaging in ongoing oversight of that, you are moving very far afield from what the courts ordinarily would be comfortable doing. And the book makes the point that this can get the judges nervous, they're not used to it. And also it does raise a legitimate concern as to whether the courts can properly oversee a tribunal that's doing that. Because if you're doing something that's so far afield from what the courts feel they can do, from the kind of issues that they would say are justiciable, you know, justiciability including concerns around government allocating resources and balancing competing concerns are usually matters the courts don't find to be something they should be considering, they should find justiciable. Uh, if you're getting into all that at the tribunal level, how is the court to properly oversee you if you start taking on this extremely broad mandate? So that's a, an interesting concern, an interesting dynamic to keep in the back of your mind. Um, so the big picture takeaways though on this is just this idea that the tribunals have certain features that may make them more amenable to broad systemic remedies than do the courts. This isn't going to be limitless, but it certainly is a feature that may mean that when you have a client come before you, you know, you may be able to think, listen, I could probably affect uh, more change and more lasting change by going to a tribunal than going to a court. You know, it may be that, let's say somebody says, well, my rights were affected. I was treated in a way that was discriminatory. You could think, oh, I'll go get you charter damages. We'll go to court and we'll sue the person. But you may also think, wait a second, there's also a human rights component here. And it may be that if I en engage human rights, you know, I may have some of these broader ongoing systemic relief available to me. So it's something to keep in mind. Uh, it's not limitless, but it certainly is a feature of tribunals that these types of relief may be available. Any questions? All right, I'm going to keep going. Um, I want to talk a little bit about enforcement. So we've kind of gotten through this top uh, topic, and let's talk a little bit about enforcement. So enforcing your orders of a tribunal should be a consideration that, that arises also right at the outset. This is no different from when you're deciding whether it's worth it to go through court to sue somebody. You have to think at the end of the day, not only can I get a remedy, can I get an order, and will anything actually come of that? 
you know, somebody comes to your office and they say, I had this horrible tenant and they did all this damage to my place and uh, it's a mess. It's going to cost me 20 grand to fix all the holes in the wall and to, to redo the floors, et cetera, et cetera. And you believe that these people just skip town and they move to Indonesia and they're not coming back, I don't think. Let's go to RTB and get an order to you know, compel them to fix my, my floors. You might say, okay, I probably can get that order. Um, but do we have any sense as to, uh, you know, if they have assets in Canada, if there's bank accounts here, if there's relatives here, if there's any connections that means they're gonna be coming back here, um, do we know if Indonesia would uh, recognize and enforce an order of a residential tenancy branch in British Columbia? Would there be a way to actually compel these people to pay? And it may be that, you know, at the outset, you have to tell your client, listen, better to eat this one than to pay me another 20 grand to go get an order that's just going to be nothing. So enforcement at the outset, just like in any case, another crucial thing to think about. Um, beyond those sort of practical problems of will this person actually comply with an order? Will they actually pay me? You also want to think about, you know, what are the powers of different tribunals that may be available to your client to enforce its orders? And you're going to start to feel like I'm a broken record. I'm going to be saying this over and over and over again in this course. But if I want to know what powers a tribunal has to do something to enforce an order, I'm going to look again at that enabling statute. That's always the answer. Go look at the statute, see if the statute gave it the powers. And sometimes statutes will give tribunals really good enforcement powers, powers to garnish wages, powers to garnish bank accounts, you know, powers to put liens on property. These sorts of powers can really compel payment quite effectively. It may be that there's no real enforcement powers. It may also be that the enforcement power is, in essence, our orders can be registered as if they were an order of the BC Supreme Court, and then you get the BC Supreme Court enforcement powers. So they're all different permutations that may exist. To look through the tribunal um, enabling statute to see which ones apply to your case. If you do have the, um, if you do get an order, there's really two different paths that may uh, be followed. One is the tribunal has a interest itself in ensuring its orders are enforced. So best case scenario, the tribunal is gonna take the steps of chasing down the person, enforcing its order, monitoring it, you know, engaging in whatever powers it has to compel performance. It's best case scenario for you, right? I don't have to do anything. But the other possibility is a tribunal doesn't do that. The tribunal says, well, you got your order, and now it's up to you to enforce it. And that may sound harsh and a little bit crazy, but that's what the BC Supreme Court's rule is too, in essence. They give you certain powers, but the BC Supreme Court doesn't go about enforcing its own orders. You know, it, it relies on an expectation of compliance, and then there are certain powers that can be invoked by litigants when powers are not, when orders are not complied with. So, what I'm getting at there is that if the tribunal doesn't enforce its own order, it falls on you 
to try to take steps to enforce that order. That may include invoking powers that are in the Tribunal's Act that can be invoked by a litigant. Sometimes it'll say on the application by a litigant, the Tribunal may make an order compelling garnishment of wages or something like that. It may mean you go to the BC Supreme Court and invoke one of those powers, and now you have, in essence, a BC Supreme Court order. What I mean by this is there are places, there are a lot of tribunals that say their orders can be entered as orders of the Supreme Court. You go to the BC Supreme Court with the requisition and the order, it's in essence done at the desk. They say, yep, this is an order of the RTV or whatever it is, stamp it, now it's an order of the court. And that means you have the powers of the court to do things like a subpoena to debtor, um, examination, aid of execution, some of these other remedies that you may have touched on in other courses. I won't get into them here, but that's that's one possibility. So enforcement can become its own beast, and it can be very frustrating to a client if you're not upfront with this, and it can be very frustrating to you as a lawyer when you get an order and it's not being complied with. And, then often you're left in a difficult situation where you say, oh, you know, I'll try to enforce it for you for a discount or I'll, maybe I'll do this for free because I feel bad or whatever it is. So it can put you in a tough spot, your client in a tough spot. Think about enforcement at the outset. Yeah. So is that in the enabling statute or does that just really depend on if the tribunal is known to have an interest in enforcing its own orders? Well, I mean, what the tribunal can do to enforce its orders would be in the statute. Whether the tribunal, in fact, has the resources and inclination to take much steps to enforce its orders, a little bit more tricky to know that. And so that's the sort of thing that, you know, taking a step back, a lot of stuff I'm talking about here is really tricky when you're starting out in this area, knowing what tribunal to go to. You know, I, I keep mentioning the same couple tribunals. There's so many tribunals out there. The chances of you knowing every single one that might have some bearing on your client, is pretty small. Knowing which tribunals are going to be quick to enforce, something like that, that's a, that's a more of a nuanced thing that just takes experience. And then another thing is knowing how slow a tribunal can be is an important consideration. I haven't raised this yet, and it really comes more into play later in the course, but human rights tribunal is excruciatingly slow, incredibly understaffed. I have a case, I'm doing it for just family friends, and they had a, they started their own case that they were, you know, discriminated against on the basis of disability for, for COVID, that they were subject to bad rules in their, um, in their, uh, condo uh, because people thought they were or they were traveling from the states and they thought they you know might have covid and treated them badly and whatever there's a bunch of these covid cases out there the tribunal um in essence on its own volition said uh we're not sure there's a reasonable case here they said you know ollie can you save me so i got involved and wrote you know an argument to the tribunal saying why this case should be allowed to go ahead and in the interim, actually, the condo board was trying to enforce a fine against them coming out of this in the civil resolution tribunal. So you had the dynamic of, of uh, two competing tribunals dealing with the same fundamental subject matter, CRT enforcing a fine, human rights dealing with whether that fine was justified in light of the sort of alleged COVID-related discrimination. 
CRT said, okay, we are going to stay our thing. We're not going to go ahead with our thing until human rights decides theirs. There's a lot of overlap in the um, subject matter. Human rights says, I don't think this is a meritorious case. Um, defend it. I write 10 pages defending it. Send that in. That was two years ago, and there's not been a decision on that. That's a preliminary motion. If it goes in my favor and they say, go ahead, we still have to go through the whole process. We're probably still a year, year and a half out. So that's maybe three and a half years and is clogging up the CRT. So if a client comes to me and says, there's something urgent, I need help, and I look at it, and if I can avoid human rights, I'm probably going to, because I know that that tribunal is so uh, understaffed, overworked, not getting stuff out quickly, that it may be no meaningful remedy whatsoever. So these, the point you've raised is a great one, that a lot of what I'm talking about here, these practice issues, are sort of easy to conceptualize, but difficult to apply. And you know, when you're working in this area, just like every area, but there's a lot of nuance here that means you know, those mentorship relationships, those types of things are really crucial at the outset to getting a handle on the way all this stuff works together. Any questions? All right. Um, okay, there's one more thing I want to, to, a couple things I want to touch on really quickly before the break. Um, another hypothetical in essence, not hypothetical, but another very rarely actually effective thing that is touched on by the book for enforcing a tribunal order is there's a criminal code prohibition on failing to follow a lawful order. Theoretically, it's possible that a... Um, the police would get involved and arrest somebody for failing to follow a tribunal order. Realistically, it's very unlikely that would happen. That power does not extend to orders of payment for money. That harkens back to the old problems with debtor's prison, where they'd throw you in jail for not being able to pay your debts. And you'd be like, well, now I really can't pay my debts. The same, same thing. Um, but these, these powers are really reluctantly used by the police. I'll give you an example uh, that I'll actually come back to in this class. Um, with the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion a few years back, you probably remember as big in the news, um, all these people getting arrested at the, um, at the West Ridge Marine Terminal in Burnaby um, for, you know, trying to stop the Trans Mountain Pipeline construction, right? Now, they were acting in direct violation of an order of the Canada Energy Regulator saying that this company was entitled to construct this pipeline. So Trans Mountain went to the police and said, hey, Section 127 Criminal Code says it's illegal to not follow a lawful order. I have a lawful order from this regulator saying you can't be doing this, you can't be blocking my trucks. You know what the police said? That's oh, between the two of you. That's, that's your guys' issue. It was only when Trans Mountain went to courts and got an injunction that the police started enforcing that and arresting people. So even in that circumstance where you have a giant multi, 
billion dollar project, you know, of interest to the entirety of Canada, a fully litigated matter with a clear and binding order saying they're allowed to do what they're going to do, clear, you know, um, contemptuous in a sense behavior in, in blocking that. Uh, even in that circumstance, the police weren't willing to intervene on the basis of Section 127 and this idea that you can uh, get criminal consequences for not obeying a lawful order from a regulator. So it's a pretty remote chance that that's actually a realistic thing to rely on for a client for enforcement. Okay, so the last thing I want to touch base on very quickly before we take our break is this is sort of tangent this. This is, I'm introducing something that doesn't fit really comfortably anywhere, but also is really important everywhere in this course. And so I'm introducing this now, we'll be coming back to this many times. The book mentions, sorry, um, the book mentions a statute in British Columbia that it says may have bearing on the remedies and enforcement that's available. And it specifically mentions the Administrative Tribunals Act. And I want to introduce this statute, not really in the context of talking about remedies, but rather talking in the context about how does this statute work and when does it apply? because we're gonna hear a lot about the ATA or Administrative Tribunals Act throughout this course, but there's one fact that's absolutely key that needs to be front and center in your mind when you think about the ATA. And it's that this statute only applies if another statute specifically invokes it. So the Administrative Tribunals Act, you could think of as a laundry list of possible features, powers, duties that administrative tribunals may have. And in essence, when creating other tribunals, the legislature kind of orders off the menu. Okay, I want section six, 24, 36 to 49, all to apply to this tribunal. Well, then it's going to say so explicitly in the other legislation, and only those provisions are going to apply. So this is, sounds like a mouthful, so I wanted to introduce it. We're going to come back to this, but I'll show you what it looks like. So Administrative Tribunals Act, Section 1.1 here, application by incorporation, and it's clear on this point. The provisions of this act do not operate except as made applicable to a tribunal by another enactment. So you just can't generally say, hey, ATA section 26 says this. The court's going to say, okay, is ATA section 26 applicable to this tribunal? And then you'd have to go to that tribunal's enabling statute and see if it is. So a sort of rule of thumb when you're reading these enabling statutes, and we're going to be talking again and again about how important it is to carefully read these enabling statutes. One thing you're going to do is, you know, use your trusty control F and you're going to look for 
a section that deals with the application of the Administrative Tribunals Act. So this is the Residential Tenancy Act, and they've ordered off the menu. They've got 144, 46.3, you see the list there. And then you would go to the Administrative Tribunals Act and say, okay, what is section 46.3? And you say, all right, it's a tribunal without jurisdiction to apply the Human Rights Code. Okay, interesting. So that's a provision that says the, eight, the administrative or the residential tenancy branch doesn't have jurisdiction to apply the Human Rights Code. Huh, well, that gets at the fundamental question of you know, the tribunals having different remedial powers and different scopes of jurisdiction. So you wouldn't, you know, you'd be remiss if you were to not follow through carefully where the Administrative Tribunals Act is invoked when you're reviewing your statutes because you could miss something, you know, pretty important like that. So this is the first time we're going to talk about this, not the last time, but I hope that the um, basic structure of this is like a laundry list, a, uh, a menu that you could order off of, but it only comes into play if it's specifically invoked by another, another piece of legislation makes sense. All right, let's take the break now and we'll come back at 11.40. Okay, hi everyone. We got a fair amount to get through, so I'm gonna get right back to it. Um, so moving on, um, we've talked about enforcement now and I'm going to move out of this to the next topic, challenging things outside of court. And so this is the idea. You get somebody in your office unhappy with an administrative decision, and you don't necessarily have to jump to judicial review, statutory appeal, we're going to court, let's go. There may be other things that you can do which don't involve invoking the court that will be more efficient, more effective for your client. The first thing is to think whether you can go back to the tribunal for an internal review. This can be either asking the tribunal itself, hey, have another look at this, please. Or it can be um, going to a appeal body that's still within the statutory context. So I'll go through both of those things. Going to the tribunal itself and saying, hey, take another look at this, this doesn't seem right is um, again something that's only available generally if it is something that's empowered by the statute. Now there's a what's called the slip rule, which is clearly just errors in reducing something to writing. This is not what you meant. You forgot to put the word not here so it looks like the opposite of what you clearly intended. They're always allowed to fix those. That's fine. That's just a slip. But when you're saying, no, I know what you meant, but what you meant is wrong and you really should reconsider it. Ordinarily, you don't have the power to go ask the tribunal to, to reconsider it. Just like a court, they're ordinarily considered functus done once they've issued their decision. However, there are tribunals that have explicit reconsideration powers given to them. And when they do, you can go try to invoke that reconsideration power. So I'm going to go back to the Residential Tenancy Act just because it, you know, 
provides good examples of lots of these things. Section 79 sets out the reconsideration powers. So you can apply to the director for a review of the director's order. And again, director really means the director's assignees, all the uh, individuals, but this is saying go back to the same decision maker for a review of their order. And there are powers to do so provided by the Residential Tenancy Act, but they're not unlimited. They're actually very limited. You could only do this on one of these, um, whatever it is, nine grounds or so. And it's things like you were not able to attend the hearing for things that couldn't have been anticipated or out of your control. You have new and relevant information that wasn't available at the time of the hearing. If you don't fall within one of these various things, you can't go back. And one of these isn't that I really think you were wrong. You know, one of these isn't you got the law dead wrong. You did something that's completely unreasonable. In those circumstances, you don't have any power to go back for reconsideration. You're stuck. If you want that decision overturned, go into the courts. So powers to reconsider may exist. They'll be found in the statute for anything besides just a mere slip, just you messed up or did something in writing. For anything where you're actually saying what you decided was wrong, you need to find that power in the statute. And if it doesn't get assigned in the statute, it doesn't exist. So that's the first option, reconsideration, going back to the tribunal, asking them to change their decision. Second option, maybe there is a right of appeal to a different statutorily created body. Workers' Compensation Board, I've talked about this before, is within a statutory scheme that also has the Workers' Compensation Appeal Tribunal. If you're unhappy with the decision of the Workers' Compensation Board, you don't have to go to judicial review, statutory appeal to the courts. You have an internal appeal. You have an appeal within the statutory mechanism to another tribunal. And that's the key thing to keep in mind. I know the phrase statutory appeals can get confusing because, you know, one, I'm talking about an appeal to a statutory body. The other, I'm talking about an appeal to the court that is created by statute. When I talk about statutory appeals, that phrase, that phrase means appeals to the court. But there may also be an appeal to another administrative body. That's a very distinct concept. Appeal from WCB to Workers' Compensation Appeal Tribunal. That's an appeal mechanism within the statutory scheme to another administrative body, not to the courts. Ordinarily, you're expected to go, uh, to go exhaust that before you go for judicial review. This is getting to the point that was raised earlier very prudently about exhaustion of internal remedies. If you're unhappy with the WCB decision, we'll come back to this in a few minutes, but if you're unhappy with the WCB decision, you go to court saying, judicial review, this was unreasonable. 
They'll say, did you go to WCAT? Did you appeal this to the Workers' Compensation Appeal Tribunal? You say no, they're going to say, well, I'm not going to judicially review this. You haven't exhausted your internal, internal to the statutory scheme remedies. And you remember, I think it's an important point to keep in mind, you know, some of these tribunals, including workers' compensation, are designed to handle high volume of cases by getting a lot of decisions done quickly and usually relatively right, but providing a safety valve of, a, of an appeal to another administrative body to take a closer look and correct any errors. So when you're thinking, I'm unhappy with the decision, and I want something to challenge that decision by not going to court, I want to think, do I have a reconsideration power? Is there an ability to appeal or get this reviewed by another statutory body? There's two more things I want to touch on under this heading. The book touches briefly on complaints to an ombudsperson. It's true, it's possible. Sometimes ombudspersons get quite interested in a matter. Realistically, you can't put too much faith in them because they don't have the power to overrule a tribunal. They can, in essence, give an opinion. If the tribunal has some power to reconsider or change their order, maybe they'll do that in light of the ombudsperson's decision. But in my experience, it's a not where you're likely going to find the relief for your client. So, you know, it's there. It's not much of a cure-all. There's one more thing, though, that I don't think is really mentioned in the book and I think is really important to be clear on. Like, maybe this is the most important of all of these in some ways. And that is... You have to think to yourself, okay, I don't, let's say I don't have a statutory, I don't have a um, internal reconsideration ability. There's no other administrative body, no other body created by statute I can appeal or ask for review by this, of this thing by. Ombudsperson's kind of useless. All right, well, then I'm going to court. Well, what could you get at court? You can get a chance to go back to the tribunal and, in essence, argue your case again. This is really important. You might be able to just reapply to the tribunal anyways without going to court at all. It may be that what the tribunal said to you is, you can't have this because there's this problem. You might be able to fix that problem and then go back to the tribunal. You may think that their identification of this problem was idiotic, made no sense, should be overturned on judicial review. But it may be a heck of a lot cheaper just to address that problem and go back to them than it is to go through the whole court process. And I'll, I'll give you an example from my own practice that illustrates this. So I had this case where I was retained by these people who live in these really beautiful 100-year-old cabins in Belcara Provincial Park in Port Moody. It's really gorgeous. 
his cabins are rough. Like there's it's wood stoves, outhouses, but they've lived there for a really long time, including one resident, um, you know, she's 80, and she had lived there since she was in her 20s. So her whole life had been living there. They rent the cabins. Uh, they're leased from the Metro Vancouver Regional District. Metro Vancouver Regional District's deal with them was, in essence, this part of what is otherwise the park is yours. It's not open for public access. This is where you live. Uh, Metro Vancouver, you know, said, well, we actually want to open this area up for the public. It's a park. We should be in the business of parks. So we are evicting you because we're changing the use of these cabins from residential to park use, and it's not consistent with you living there anymore. These residents go to the residential uh, tenancy branch. They get that eviction set aside. Uh, I wasn't involved at this time. And the eviction was set aside on the basis that it was premature. In order to convert these things to park use, there is some upgrading, some construction that's needed. You don't have the permits in place for that construction. That's a precondition in the act to evicting somebody, you know, because of um, planned improvements. So what were they saying? Go get the permits and then come back. And then we'll re, you know, we can reconsider this. Well, Metro Vancouver instead hired, you know, a big law firm to judicially review the residential tenancy decision. They said, you're wrong. The statute doesn't apply in this way, properly interpreted or reasonably interpreted. We didn't have to have the permits before this eviction in these circumstances. I become involved. I defend the judicial review. I was cocky. I thought I was going to win, to be honest. I lost the judicial review. But I lost the judicial review about 10 months after it was filed. Um, I then started an appeal because I really thought that the judicial review should not have been allowed. You know, I thought it was a pretty meritorious appeal. All of a sudden, we're in COVID times. Things really slow down at the courts. Ultimately, the judicial review or the, the appeal stretches out for like 18 months or something like that. I lost again. Uh, I really thought I was going to win that appeal. I lost that. Meanwhile, though, people are still living in the cabins, right? And I'll talk about stays of proceeding in a second, but they're still living in the cabins. What's the remedy after losing the appeal? Well, it's go back to the residential tenancy branch and do it again. Now we're right back at the residential tenancy branch. They don't have a hearing for a really long time that they're able to offer. I raise some new issues. It gets complicated again. Eventually, we come to an agreement that they can stay for another, I think it was like 18 months, and then they'll finally leave. So from when Metro Vancouver didn't get that RTB order to when the people finally actually left, it was something like four and a half years. Had Metro Vancouver simply said, oh, yeah, we're going to go get those permits, um, and then we'll go back to RTB, RTB would have said, you listened, you did what I told you to do. Obviously, the eviction stands. It would have been wrapped up, I guess, in like three months. Instead, they spent, I would 
estimate, you know, a quarter million dollars in legal fees on this giant thing and didn't get their outcome for years. And what I'm getting at here is, you know, this is a remedies problem. This is the court not being the right place to turn to. And frankly, the advice that Metrovan either didn't get or didn't listen to should have been, hey, let's just let's just do what they say. Let's go back to the RTB. We'll slightly tweak the facts by doing what they asked us to do, and we should be successful the next time. So this is an important thing that I want you to keep in mind. You know, it's a long story, but I hopefully it lands some of these ideas. But what the um, the, the point is, and I, again, I don't think it's really emphasized in the book that much. Sometimes you don't need to go to judicial review to be able to go back before the tribunal and ask again. Sometimes you can just change the evidence or uh, do something in the interim to fix any problems they identified previously and go back and probably be treated pretty well because you know you listen to them. So this is covering off this question of challenging outside of court. Those are the kind of the four options I want you to have in mind. Can I ask the decision maker to reconsider? Is there some kind of statutory internal body I can go to to ask to appeal or review the decision to? Should I go to the ombudsperson? And can I just fix the issue and try again with the same decision maker? Okay, any questions on these? All right. So the next thing I want to get to is statutory appeals. And statutory appeals are, we've mentioned them before, that's when the statute specifically says a decision of an administrative body can be appealed to a court. BC Supreme Court, Federal Court, BC Court of Appeal, Federal Court of Appeal, all of them have different statutes to send appeals directly to them. We're going to talk a lot about statutory appeals in the context of standard of review because that's a big development of Vavilov. So, you know, we'll put a pin in that. We're coming back to it. For present purposes, though, I want to talk a tiny bit about um, when you can invoke a statutory appeal and a tiny bit about, um, about uh, the remedies that are available in a statutory appeal. So when you can invoke a statutory appeal, is you know unsurprisingly going to be set by the statute. Again, you have to look to the statute to see the powers that are created. So an example that I like is the Legal Professions Act, the Lawyers Act. And if you're unhappy with the decision of the Law Society, you know you're a lawyer. They say you've committed professional misconduct. The Legal Professions Act, interestingly enough has two options. Your decision can be reviewed by what's called the review board. This is section 47. So your decisions can be made by a panel of three, two lawyers, one non-lawyer. If you're upset with that decision, you can apply to the review board. That's a panel of all the benchers, or all the benchers who can sit, a quorum of benchers at least, who are going to review the decision and you know, potentially change it. 
So this is an internal mechanism. This is within the statutory scheme. And this is a potential option open to your client. Now, I've been circling this idea, and I'll come back to it at the end of the class, about exhausting internal remedies. And ordinarily, I'd say to myself, ooh, there is an internal review mechanism. I can go to this other statutory entity. Better do that first. I certainly couldn't run a judicial review now. However, I'd be remiss if I didn't bother to actually read the statutory appeal clause because it actually contemplates skipping the review board. So it says, persons who are affected by a decision, determination, or order of a panel or of a review board may appeal the decision to the court of appeal. So what's happening here is they're saying, if you're unhappy with the decision of a panel, you can go to a review board or you can go to the Court of Appeal directly, or you can go to the Review Board and then to the Court of Appeal. So I had a case with a lawyer, and we were very unhappy with the outcome at the, um, at the panel level, and looked at this and said, look, I think, honestly, that the Review Board, you know, they might just uh, fix some of the, the little mistakes and we'll get the same outcome anyways. And there's actually a pretty core issue of um, you know, problem in regulation of the legal profession that should get its eyes from the Court of Appeal. And let's skip the review board. They're only gonna make our job a little bit harder, frankly. Let's go right to the Court of Appeal and um, ultimately very successful there. So you need to recognize that statutory appeals you know, mean what they say. And any general rules about exhausting internal remedies, you know, ripeness, prematurity, these types of things I'll be talking about with judicial review, they may not arise with statutory appeals if the statute says otherwise. Follow the statute. Here the statute contemplates going right from the panel to the court of appeal. You're allowed to do that. Next thing I want to point out with these statutory appeals, they may limit the types of questions you're allowed to bring up on that appeal. So you'll see here, section two, an appeal by the society, meaning the law society, is limited to an appeal on a question of law. So what that means is if the law society is unhappy with the decision of the panel or a review board, they can also appeal it to the court of appeal, but they could only raise a question of law. Whereas if a lawyer is unhappy with the decision, they can argue a question of law, a question of fact, a question of mixed fact and law. They have broader uh, appeal rights. So again, it's just uh, the dead horse is starting to get beaten. Just you're going to have to always look to the statute to find these powers. Yeah. Um, will the internal appeal also have specifics of what can be appealed? It may or may not. And you'd have to just look and, and see. Yeah, and there are some details on that in a lot of statutes as to what could be appealed and what couldn't be. And the standard of review that would be applied internally. Is it a rehearing where you call all the evidence over again? Is it a review on the record? We'll get into these kind of ideas later. Is your question? Um, yeah, just about procedural fairness. Are there ever arguments made when what's allowed to be appealed is insufficient or something like that? You know, this is a 
excellent and extremely tricky question. Like this, this is one of the things that's really at the cutting edge. Um, the intersection of statutory appeals, judicial review, and what you do with a limited statutory appeal, does that preclude judicial review of the same, you know, if there's an issue that you can't statutory appeal, could you judicial review it? That's before the Supreme Court of Canada right now in a decision I hope comes out before we get to that part of the course, but I'm gonna explain the arguments that were made there. And I think the answer is gonna be you can do both, but that's it's a really great question. I'm gonna put a pin in that for frankly six weeks or so. All right. Um, okay, so statutory appeals, um, really important. We're gonna come back to them. The last point is remedies on a statutory appeal. The court, in essence, acts like a um, an appeal court, and they'll approach it in the same way they do any appeal, where they'll they may allow the appeal and substitute their own decision. They may allow the appeal and send the matter back for redetermination, rehearing, or they may dismiss the appeal and affirm the lower judgment. So it's, it's really just tracks their powers that they ordinarily have when reviewing, for example, a BC Supreme Court decision. We'll touch base on this again, but I just want to introduce that briefly there. Okay. Um, the next thing I want to talk about before I get into starting on judicial review, which we'll not finish today, but we'll, we'll talk about more next class, is a really important thing for practice, frankly, for your exam, you want to think about this too. Um, for your client, for um, for your broader conception of law, stays of proceeding, pending appeal, or pending judicial review, are extraordinarily important. And if you forget to ask for one you may have really messed up. So the ordinary rule in British Columbia is that filing a statutory appeal, filing an application for judicial review doesn't affect the legality or the obligation to comply with the regulatory decision on review. It still is effective, despite the appeal being ongoing, the judicial review being ongoing. So therefore, one of the first things that you uh, need to consider when a client comes into your office with a decision they're unhappy with is whether you wanna get a stay or an injunction, I should say stay or injunction pending review, pending your statutory appeal, pending your judicial review. A real obvious example I just sort of touched on um, in residential tenancy. Now, if the Residential Tenancy Act upholds an eviction and says, you're out of here in three weeks, you file a judicial review, but you don't get a stay of that eviction. The landlord is entirely within their rights to hire a moving company, get your stuff out of there, change the locks and rent the place out to somebody else. Just because you're challenging it in court doesn't mean that decision isn't effective. That's what a stay does. You go to the court, 
and you say, pending determination of my judicial review, pending determination of my statutory appeal, I want you to order that this regulatory decision won't be given effect. Stays really go hand in hand with and are really just a form of injunction. Sometimes you phrase your relief in injunctive terms as opposed to stay terms. And sometimes that's because you want to stop somebody from exercising a right they acquired through an administrative process. So for example, with this forestry judicial review, I mentioned a few times that's now been adjourned. Um, it's about cutting permits that were issued. And if I wanted the forest company to not go log those those uh, cut blocks, I couldn't simply file a judicial review of the cutting permits being issued. I need to get an injunction from the court saying, you cannot go harvest these cut blocks, can for. So sometimes you frame it as a stay. You know, this the effect of this administrative order will not be, uh, it will not become effectual, will not be given effect until this review is heard. Sometimes you frame it as an injunction. You can't exercise your rights under this order until uh, it's heard. Either way, the test is the same. It doesn't really matter how you frame it. Either way, the test is the same RJR McDonald test you've probably heard before in injunctions. Is there a serious question to be tried? Is there irreparable harm? And does the balance of convenience favor granting the relief sought? So serious question, irreparable harm, balance of convenience. I, you probably have heard that before. If not, you know we'll, we will be coming back to it. And I don't care much about how well you know and can apply the RGR McDonald test. I do care that you know you need to go get something. You need to go get something to stay the effect of an order pending review on your exam. I'd like to see that. You know, if there's a potential that this administrative order that's at issue could harm your client while the judicial review or statutory appeal is happening, I'd like you to note that and make sure that you point out to me that you're going to need to get a stay of it because really good lawyers forget to do this. I live in a neighborhood that had an interesting neighbor for a while. The Hells Angels Clubhouse was like four doors down. And um, it was recently subject to civil forfeiture. You're probably broadly aware of that case. They were oddly enough, like really good neighbors um, in the sense that the, the uh, on Halloween, for one, is full-size candy bars, like for all the kids. <laughs> um, you know, if it snowed, there'd be these like young, pretty tough-looking guys, but clearly like putting in their dues, just shoveling, you know, not their sidewalk, but everywhere in the neighborhood. And, um, you know, I think realistically, the bad stuff doesn't happen on houses that have giant Hells Angels logos on it. It happens in houses that you don't, you wouldn't realize are associated with Hells Angels. Regardless, they got... Um, subject to civil forfeiture. They reviewed that civil forfeiture order at the BC Supreme Court. BC Supreme Court said, 
This order was no good, setting it aside, you know, in essence, judicial review allowed. They appealed that, the Crown appealed that to the, to the BC Court of Appeal. And the BC Court of Appeal said, you got it wrong, lower court. The administrative order to forfeit this house was fine. It's going into effect. And the lawyers forgot to ever ask, and I think they admitted they forgot to ever ask for a stay of the Court of Appeals order, which, you know, re reimposed the, um, the ultimate forfeiture order. So the forfeiture took effect, title was transferred, and now the house belongs to the BC government as opposed to the, um, you know, how's the angels, the angel acres, whatever the corporation they had was. So the Hells Angels tried to appeal the Supreme Court of Canada, sought leave to appeal, and they said, hold on, unwind the, the transfer um, because, you know, it's, we just, we kind of messed up. We didn't ask for a stay. Well, the, the court said, no, we're not going to unwind this transfer. You didn't ask for a stay. Our order was effective. Um, the BC government lawfully um, made this transfer, and there's no basis for us to unwind this transfer because you have this leave to appeal outstanding. It's not a basis to do so. And so that rendered the potential remedies they could get, even if it was turned out that the, um, the forfeiture was uh, deemed to, to not be lawful, would only be damages. It would just be money. They wouldn't get the house back. That ended it. That ended the potential of this house ever being in their hands again. And so good lawyer forgot to get a stay. It's really important to think about these things or else you can fall into uh, very difficult situations where your client is going to be, and some clients are worse to disappoint than others, it's going to be pretty mad at you. Um, anyways, so just I just tell that story, for one, because it's local interest, and for two, because it, um, it, it helps land that idea that stays are just really, really important. And now nobody shovels, so that, that house is like a death trap around it. Anyways... Um, Okay, so we've got just a few more minutes. Um, and I want to then, I won't get into these um, writs and what they mean. That'll be a good jumping off point for next class. I'm just going to introduce some ideas about judicial review now, and then we'll pick up with it next class. Uh, and the, the main idea I want to emphasize is what the book does a great job of, of underscoring is the kind of extraordinary nature of judicial review as a remedy. And it's extraordinary in a number of different ways. But one way that it's extraordinary is its history, its roots. And its roots lie in the courts of equity, in the courts of chancery. I'm sure you've all, you know, dealt with equitable issues before and the division between law and equity, but it really does still resonate in this area of law, especially in the concept that judicial review, like all equitable remedies, is discretionary. So you need to convince a court not just that an administrative tribunal acted outside its lawful authority, but that the court should intervene in this case to address that problem.
And really what you're doing is you're saying to the court, look, you need to think big picture about your role in this broad structure of government. And you need to intervene despite there being no statute saying you should do this. No ordinary common law cause of action, no action for damages. You should get involved anyways because fundamentally the rule of law demands it. We can't have the executive straying beyond the scope of its lawful authority. That's what happened. You have to get involved. You have to exercise your equitable jurisdiction to do so. And equitable jurisdiction is really a remarkable thing. I mean, equity is, um, if, you, if you haven't taken equitable remedies, I would really highly recommend that course. It's, I think when I took it, it was a two credit course, uh, but it's probably one that I've gotten more out of than almost anything at law school. Uh, because equity really has the most fantastic remedies. You can get very creative and higher damages for your clients if you can uh, work into an equitable remedy. You can get remedies of, of tracing assets. You can get, um, you know, not just money, but you can get an actual specific house or piece of property returned to you. And you can get remedies quashing and setting aside and overruling executive decisions. And that's where, you know, administrative law comes into play. But the sort of price almost of you being in equity with all these wonderful remedies that come as a result is that every remedy is discretionary and you always run the risk that the court will say, I'm not inclined to, to assist you here. And this creates, and the book does a good job of highlighting this, a tension. A tension between, on the one hand, the rule of law, and on the other hand, equitable discretion. Because if what you have is an executive doing something that's not authorized by law, and you've proven that to a court, you know, it feels pretty um, inconsistent with the rule of law for the court to say, well, I'm not going to do anything about it regardless. How that tension's been resolved is by the court saying, listen, we have a discretion to refuse to grant equitable relief, including in applications for judicial review, but we are only going to exercise that discretion in a principled basis. And we're going to set out the types of factors that would tend to um, potentially disentitle you to equitable relief. And we're going to encourage some predictability by doing that, by not just saying we have this broad, untrammeled discretion to refuse relief. So what are the factors that could cause a court to not be inclined to give you equitable relief? There's really five of them. The first is the question that we've circled a few times, adequate alternative remedies. Is there a reconsideration power you didn't invoke? Is there an a, uh, appeal to another administrative body that is intended to oversee this? If so, they're going to say, go follow the statutory remedies before coming to me 
asking for this extraordinary relief of judicial review. The second one is that the relief side is premature. And this often comes up when you have an ongoing administrative process and you have a concern with something that's happened along the way. Not the final decision, but an interim sort of interlocutory along the way decision. And I'll give you an example. Uh, so Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion, obviously a gigantic administrative process. And this will be the last thing I'll do. I'll, I'll do the rest of this um, on Friday. But I think this is a good thing to sort of to land the premature question. So I won't, I won't drop this story. Mm -hmm. So Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion, you're all familiar with it, I'm sure, on some level. Extremely uh, engaged administrative process stretching over many years. Okay, what's one of the first things you have to do in assessing a pipeline? Well, you have to do an environmental assessment. That's a statutory prerequisite to issuing a certificate of convenience and necessity that is needed for a pipeline to be built. You have to have done an environmental assessment. What's the first thing you have to do in an environmental assessment? You have to scope it. You have to scope what's in the environmental assessment and what's out. There were controversial scoping decisions on the Trans Mountain Pipeline expansion. One of the most controversial ones was greenhouse gas emissions. And they said, we're going to consider the greenhouse gas emissions from the actual construction of the pipeline, but not from what's going in the pipeline or not what's being burnt on the other side. So not the expansion of oil sands development or the actual burning of the fossil fuels that come through the pipeline. You know, for opponents, a very controversial decision, obviously. Another one that was controversial at the outset was they said marine shipping is not part of the environmental assessment. We're not going to consider the impact of increased tanker traffic on things like, you know, the southern resident orca population. Very controversial. Controversial enough that somebody, a, group, a few groups, Tsleil-Waututh and other, other uh, groups, applied to the Federal Court of Appeal through a statutory appeal seeking leave to review the scoping decision as a preliminary matter. Federal Court of Appeal said it's premature. This whole pipeline might not be approved. I'm not going to get into the minutia of scoping decisions, other decisions made along the way. Let's get a final decision and then I'll review it. What ultimately happens? Well, goes forward, pipeline gets approved. It is judicially reviewed to the federal court. In the interim, there is civil unrest. You know, there's arrests happening. You know, Mayor Kennedy Stewart, Elizabeth May, hundreds of other people are getting arrested, facing jail time, protesting the pipeline. Gets to the federal court, and they grant judicial review on two bases, one of which was the scoping of marine shipping. They said, I, you were wrong at the outset. So they refused to hear something because it was premature. The whole thing went on for years. The cost is astronomical. The failure to intervene at the outset meant that the whole thing had to be redone on the marine shipping issue at least and delayed the whole pipeline for a year. So opponents and proponents both really would have done better if that had been dealt with at the outset. So I raised that example just to show you the general reluctance of courts to intervene with matters they think may be premature and also so you have an illustration of how that could backfire against a court not always but it could all right sorry for keeping you a few minutes late um but thanks so much and we'll pick it up on friday